The following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Um, over to Joe, who's going to read, and then James is going to preach. Uh, I'll pray just before we, we do that. Lord, thank you so much for all that you are doing among us, and we praise you for your word and for the power of your word and for how you speak to us uh, loudly and clearly um, through it. You speak to, uh, to change us, to encourage us, to shape us, to challenge us, um, to... Uh, help our blind eyes to see, our deaf ears to hear, um, to give us, uh, where there is dullness, to give us um, sensitivity, to bring us awake and alive and alert. Um, We just praise you for all the ways that your spirit uses your word and pray that you'd be doing all those things in us now. Help us to keep seeking you, to keep being intentional as we we look to you together. Help us to do that um, in humility and repentance. Um, Give us openness to to you and to your word now. Um, we praise you. Amen. Um, evening, everybody. So tonight's reading is Luke, and it's page um, 1052. Um, so that's 18, and it's 9 to 14. You have to forgive me, because I've just got reading glasses, and I'm not used to taking them anywhere with me, so I can only read in bed. So, um, but fortunately, it's a long way away, so I can see... The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Evening, everybody. Let me add my welcome. My name's James. I work here at church, and it's great to see you all this evening. And this week, I did something that I've been meaning to do for some time, which is go and see the Barbie movie. Uh, I think 7.5 out of 10 for me. I think uh, clever, good twist at the end, quite a helpful message, bit of deconstruction. For me, I'd say I'd want a few more laugh-out-loud jokes. Um, Although I'd be lying if I said I never laughed, and I'd also be lying if I said... I haven't non-stop listened to the Dua Lipa track that kind of comes halfway through the film. I think you found love of Dua Lipa. But imagine, this was Friday, big event for us, because Lars and I don't get out much. Imagine if, so excited going to the cinema, and someone walks to the front of the cinema after the trailers, lights come up, and they say, hello everyone, I'm just going to explain what happens in the story before you watch it. You'd like that. Vivian, that's crazy. I was about to say how terrible that would be. That is horrible. For me, you want the twists and the turns of the story. You want to know what's going to happen, and when the shock hits you, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that. You wouldn't get that if someone comes and explains the story. Now, the problem is, we're doing this series called Stories Jesus Told, 
And if you've been in church for ages, um, you've probably heard all the stories. You know how they go. The shocks don't shock you. The laughs don't make you laugh in the same way. Actually, I'd argue that so many of these stories are so culturally ingrained in Britain, and so many of the values that are behind these stories are in our society without us knowing that we're not shocked in the same way by some of the shocks. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite us all this evening to go through the story as if we've never read it before, as if we don't know that the shock is coming. So when I come out with a shock, I want to... (gasps) from lots of people. I'll say it twice if there's no kind of intake of breath, so you know where the shock is. That is the punchline. Uh, Let's dig in to verse 9 and verse 10. (coughs) To some who were confident of their own righteousness, that means just kind of rightness, goodness, you might say, their right standing, their kind of public swagger. And look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable or story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two characters doing really, really similar things, or doing the same thing. They're going up to the temple to pray. In Jerusalem, where the story was set, where Jesus is heading, which is the kind of capital of that part of the world, the temple was on a big hill. So everyone could look and see in the skyline, there's a temple, and that's where you go up to pray. In that kind of Jewish religion, it formed a really significant function. That actually, you go to the temple in order to be close to God. That's his symbolic presence with the people of Jerusalem, with the people of that nation. You go up there in order to pray in a way that, you know, we don't need to do today. But although they're doing the same thing, they couldn't be more different. One is a kind of upstanding, religious, good bloke. Think of kind of bishop in the Church of England, someone who's very impressive, wears good clothes. Everyone knows when they walk in, oh, okay, this guy's a bishop, look at the hat. And then, on the other hand, you've got someone who is a tax collector. Now, we don't love tax collectors now, let's be honest, they take our money. But back then in the ancient world, tax collectors were pretty much nasty pieces of work. The way the Romans, who kind of occupied Palestine at that time, the way they kind of ran their empire is they'd select people as collaborators from the local population. And what they'd say to the tax collectors is, look, this is how much tax we need you to collect, but you can charge however much you like, and the rest of it's your salary. So people would charge kind of huge amounts of tax and then have massive salaries. Clever. And thereby, you kind of ostracize yourself from everybody else. But it's kind of worse than that, because when you look at a Palestinian bloke who's a tax collector, you see betrayal, you see that you are under the kind of Roman imperial jackboot. You see that your money that you've earned goes not just to provide services for yourself, but to pay towards kind of pagan temples, towards the armies that are oppressing your people. Tax collectors are cheats. They're traitors. And they're kind of rightly socially ostracized. That's the downside of being a tax collector. The upside is you become really rich. The downside is you have no friends, really. Two blokes. They couldn't be more different. Here's the first heading, and you'll see it on your little uh, piece of paper that I've handed out. The Pharisee, or bishop, the Pharisee is very impressive. 
Uh, little sentence number 11 in the Bible says this, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. There's four bits of evidence that this guy is kind of super impressive. The first one is he stands by himself. And almost picture, you know, I don't know how many of you do this every Saturday night, but you're on the dance floor, right? And you see someone who really knows what they're doing. They've really got all the moves, and they kind of do this thing, don't they, where they kind of they spread a little bit. They kind of make a little ring so they can dance and everyone can see them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I do it all the time, you know, in the, and you just spread a big gaps that everyone can see. He's doing the same, but he's praying. So he's kind of making, he's kind of making a little semicircle. Everyone can see what I'm doing. That's the first thing that's impressive. Secondly, he's saying, look, I'm just not like other people. Cheats, uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I'm one of the good guys. Compared to this guy, you kind of look around, there's loads of people who don't compare favorably. Bad people. Thirdly, he fasts twice a week. Now, fast is when you kind of go without something for a set period of time so that you can pray, devote yourself to God. It's a thing that monks do all the time. It's a thing that is in the Bible and we should do, often associated with food, going without food or water for a long period of time so you can be focused on God. He fasts twice a week. So this is very impressive. These are his religious duties, if you like. He's, he's someone who never misses a Sunday at church, makes every midweek meeting, like clockwork, without fail. He's very good. And fourthly, the fourth thing that's impressive about him is he gives a tenth of everything that he earns in. That's very sacrificial. His income, his dividends maybe, the things that are grown on his estate, he gives 10% without fail. He's a good guy. Very, very impressive. He's certainly impressed with himself, isn't he? You hear it when he talks? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Me, 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 I, I, I. At points in this prayer, it's not completely clear whether he's praying or just kind of talking to himself. He certainly gets distracted by himself halfway through, doesn't he? God, I thank you. And then sort of God doesn't feature as he's like, I fast loads and I give loads. and It's all about what I do. He's impressive, but he is annoying, isn't he? He's sort of smug. And it, the worst bit, he's sort of saying, I'm not like other people, and then he sort of says, this tax collector points them out. And I don't know if he's praying in his head, sort of like when you're reading, or whether he's praying out loud, but imagine if it's out loud, and he's sort of saying, you know, imagine if I started doing that. Lord, I thank you, I'm not like, I'm not like Toby here. I mean, come on, that'd be terrible. I'm so much better. It would be horrible. But we can't deny that he is good. Because the problem is, all the things he says are true. He does do those things. I think the story leads us to believe. Here is a good guy. He's got an impressive spiritual CV. The Pharisee is impressive. That's the guy on the left, if you like. The guy on the right, the tax collector. There's no other word for it. He is a sinner. A bad guy. It's like the opposite of the Pharisee. So whereas the Pharisee kind of clears a space on the dance floor for him to pray, he stands at a distance. He doesn't even want to be noticed. In fact, he probably comes when the temple is busy so he doesn't bump into anybody. 
doesn't want to be confronted. He doesn't even look up to heaven, it says. It's like he don't dare raise his eyes to where God is, symbolically. Instead, he beats his breast, hits himself. Secondly, there's no comparison with anyone else in his prayer. Tax collector, verse 13, stood at a distance, wouldn't even look up to heaven, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Almost like there's no one else around to whom he can favorably compare himself. Thirdly, there's no mention of religious duty. And fourthly, there's certainly no financial sacrifice. There's no giving a tenth of everything I get. Instead, there's, why just rob other people, really? His prayer is brief. It's pitiful. There's nothing about him that would convince God to answer his prayer. Just a plea for mercy. And the thing is, if you were in Palestine, maybe you own a little farm, you're struggling to make ends meet, you hate the fact that the Romans have occupied you, maybe your family business has been crushed by a tax collector who's just earned a little bit too much money, you see this guy beating his breast and praying in this way, and you think, good. That's how it should be. He should say sorry. He is a sinner. And a bit like the first guy, we're led to believe that everything he says in his prayer is true. Two very different blokes with very different prayers. It's worth pausing a little bit and wondering, naturally, have you got a tendency to be a bit like the guy on my left or a bit like the guy on my right? It's an interesting game, isn't it? Are you someone who walks into a room and you immediately start working out the people you can compare yourself favorably with? Or are you like the other half of us who walk into a room and you think, gosh, everyone's more impressive than I am, eyes down. I don't want to be compared to anybody. Worth thinking, which one do you more naturally feel an affinity with? Here comes a twist. Prepare our gasps of shock. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says, that the man on my right, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Thank you. I'm disappointed in the rest of you. But I knew I could rely on a drama degree. Oh, how the turntables... Verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The good guy, he exalted himself. I'm a very big deal. And he, was hum- he will ultimately be humbled. But the bad man, he humbled himself and ultimately be exalted. And we should feel the shock of this. The guy we are supposed to hate goes home justified before God. How can this be? There is nothing about them that leads you to think this would be the case. It's good that the guy humbles himself, am I right? But he's just being honest. This is not, oh, well, he's such an authentic human being. He's authentically bad. That's what he is. And it's an interesting story, isn't it? Because in one sense, nothing happens. Do you know what I mean? One guy prays, another guy prays, and then Jesus says, but one goes home justified. And you feel like, yeah, but how? 
we're missing a whole segment of the story. How is it that a guy who should not be justified goes home justified? And the answer is that there's a third character in the story, of course. It's on your handout. God, who in the words of a book of the Bible called Romans, justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Let me read that final sentence again. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See that word, that technical word that you might not know what it means, justified in that sentence. That is a really, really important word. Justification, the process of being justified, is a huge theme in the Bible, and Jesus drops it right at the end of his story, because that is how the bad man gets to be with God. So what does justified mean? Well, uh, let's ask an expert. There's uh, someone on the slide here. This is Simon Gathercole. Well, technically, this is not Simon Gathercole. Basically, copyright rules are quite strict these days, and I couldn't use a photo of Simon Gathercole. So this is a man called Simon, being, uh, whose, whose image is free on Wikipedia, and he's being given a hug by his coach, who is called Ben Gathercole. So I, yeah, I think that's good. I think that's close. But anyway, Simon Gathercole, the expert at St. Andrews University, uh, writes in his article, Justification by Faith, Justification is the act whereby God confers a status of righteousness upon the recipient. Now, that's a long technical language. That's what they like to do at universities, so let me break it down. Justification is a thing that is legal. So it is technically and properly true that when justification happens to an individual, they get righteousness. They get to be right. They get rightness. It legally actually happens. Secondly, it's a public thing. It's a status. So when someone gets justified, it is, it is kind of for everybody to know, everybody to see, and importantly, nobody can take that away. It is public. And thirdly, I don't know if you can see this, it is passive. In other words, it's something that gets to happen to you. It's not something you do yourself. A status of righteousness is conferred by God upon the recipient. Now, when Jesus says one man goes home before God justified, this is what he's talking about. A rightness is given by God to that person. He didn't earn it. He didn't become better. And this is the best thing about it. What does he say? This man went home justified. It is instant. He doesn't earn it. He doesn't work up to it. He doesn't become right. It is awarded to him. This is so kind. But it still begs the question, how exactly does that happen? How does God have this thing called rightness, righteousness that he gives to this tax collector? In other words, how do bad people get made good? And the answer is the guy telling the story. Jesus was a great guy. The perfect man. He is what humanity absolutely should be in every way. Loving people, loving God, doing everything perfectly and kindly and brilliantly. And he walked among humanity. He was the perfectly right guy. But as he's telling the story, he's on the way to the city of Jerusalem. And in that city, he will be betrayed. He will be put on trial. He will somehow be found guilty on a trumped-up charge. And he will be executed horribly. 
He's executed in a way that's sort of hung on a cross, or like a kind of man-made tree, which is a big symbol of being under the curse of God. And he doesn't deserve it. But the Bible tells us all the way through its pages that in that moment when Jesus is hung on the cross, his, a great swap happens. And his rightness, his goodness, his perfection is given to humanity. And our sin, our unrightness, all our pain and sorrow and messed upness is taken off us and given to him. Like you swap a spotless shirt for a dirty, mangled, greasy, disgusting old t-shirt. And they just swapped over. The goodness of righteousness of Jesus is given to us. And this is offered to everybody. This is offered to everybody who wants it. Now God can take robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector and legally, publicly, permanently give them goodness. This is the good news of Christianity. That God justifies the ungodly. Hallelujah. God justifies the ungodly. And the thing to do, if you want your sins taken away forever, and if you want to be exalted by God and known by him and loved by him forever, if you want to be justified, the thing you have to do is ask. You just have to ask him. He loves to help. Look at the tax collector, verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He asks. He knows who he is and he wants help. The Pharisee doesn't ask anything, does he, in his prayer? He just tells God all about himself. He can't see his own failings. He can't see as he's listing his credentials that he's missed loads of stuff out about being kind to other people, not being arrogant about loving God how he should. And that means he can't see that he needs help. And he can't see, because he's not thinking about God, that there's only one help offered. He doesn't want righteousness given to him from God because he thinks he's righteous in here already. The only help that's not given is the help that's not asked for. Now, why did Jesus tell this story? Look at the start. We skimmed over it a little bit at the start. Sentence number nine. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. In other words, Jesus has got people like this character in mind. He's looking at them and compassionately, to those who are confident, to those who are looking down on everyone, this story is an invitation. It's a challenge but it's also an invitation. Those who think that when they stand in front of God, they can play this game and say, look at my CV, I am quality. I've done all kinds of amazing things. And they stand there before God. And as he turns his face to them, they realize that they're just holding plastic trinkets. And they've got nothing to offer God. The story is a rebuke and an invitation. Ask God who justifies the ungodly. Now, as we think a little bit about us, because although the Bible was not written to us, it is always written for us. And God has stuff to say to us this evening.
And the question is, do we want to be justified too? The answer then is that we should humble ourselves. The reality is, and I mean no offence by this at all, we've got a lot to be humble about as humanity. Like we, can, we can be brilliant. We can do all sorts of amazing creative things. We can be kind to each other too. But we're still human. We say that, right? And that means we're capable of getting things wrong, of not being kind, of being completely unfair, of hurting the people closest to us. And the Bible says God's son died on behalf of humanity. So no matter how good we get, we still cause the death of God's son. So we've got a lot to be humble about. So let's humble ourselves. The thing is, that's very vague, isn't it? Humble yourself. It's like, well, how do I do that? It's like, oh, just don't worry, be happy. You know, that's, that's so unhelpful. So how do we humble ourselves? And the answer that this story gives, I think, is that we pray. What's that quote at the top of the handout? A guy from 100 years ago, which is why he doesn't say, or she. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. If we want to be humble, we just need to pray to God. And here's the two things that I think this story says we should especially talk to God about. First of all, we should say sorry for our sins. We need to be real. We do those. That is part of being human. It is hard to acknowledge. But the reality is, God knows everything. And so he knows that we're doing these things anyway. Little sins or big ones. It's good to be real. It's good to be specific. We're a Church of England church. uh, And actually, Church of England services often make room for something called confession, which is just a moment where we can privately, but corporately, together before God, have an opportunity to talk a little bit about our sins and say sorry. In fact, we've got it on the slide that Every, there's a thing called the Book of Common Prayer, which 500 years ago was like a set of services that were written for uh, the Church of England. And morning prayer, so morning service, starts with confession, with saying sorry for our sins. It starts like this. I used to do it every week up in Preston when I worked for a church up there. It says, dearly beloved brethren, it's old language, but this, this is the bit. You want to take away. Dearly beloved brethren, the scripture moves us in sundry places to acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Uh, that we, uh, nor should we cloak or dissemble them before the face of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. But we should receive forgiveness of the same according to his infinite goodness and mercy. Now, in some ways, doing the same thing every week is quite boring, but imagine saying that every week. We should receive forgiveness of the same because of his infinite goodness and mercy. But what this is saying on the screen is, let's not make excuses. Let's just say, sorry. I was tired, that's why I snapped. I only murdered him a little bit. Like just, there's no need to make excuses. God is big enough to forgive us from all of our sins. And he's loving to do the same. And also it's worth saying, don't do what the Pharisee did and compare ourselves with other people. It's so easy to look around, especially a big room, and think, well, at least I'm not as bad as this person. 
That's what the Pharisee does. He's, he's like, oh, I'm pretty good because I'm comparing myself to murderers and adulterers. Oh, well done. That's great. Now, don't do that. If he was to compare himself with the Bible standard or with Jesus, he would see that he is not what he could be. So let's say sorry to God for our sins. Secondly, this is almost more important. Say, please, can you help me? Please, can you help me? It is the most humble thing in the world to ask for help. The Pharisee doesn't ask anything. He's so proud. This is not, I mean, it's not complicated stuff, is it? (laughs) Saying sorry to God, saying please, can you help me? But that is the whole pattern of the Christian life. That is what theologians call repentance and faith, turning away from our old life of sin and turning to God and saying, please, can you help? And what will happen? Sentence 14. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We talked about prayer and how that humbles us. This is the best bit. The Bible says if we humble ourselves... God loves us, and he will exalt us. For those of us who are like the Pharisees in this story, this story is especially for us as a challenge. But I think for those of us who are like the tax collector, you think, look, you don't know what I've done. I'm really not all that. God cannot love me in the way that other people seem confident. This story is also for us. Hear the second half of that sentence. God exalts those who humble themselves. The Bible has unlimited metaphors for how good God is to people, for how he takes people who come to him, sinners, broken people, as the prayer book would say, miserable offenders, and gives them everything. The Bible says people will be lifted up to be with God. The Bible says that sinful people like you and I will be seated at the right hand of God in a place of honour at the banquet. The Bible says that you and I will be crowned as princes and princesses of the new creation. And you might think, I don't deserve that. Correct. But that's how good he is. That's what it means to be justified. He welcomes us and treats us like royalty. Why? Because he wants to. Because he loves you. There was a book. A few years ago was doing the rounds. And if you're at the church, you probably got very sick of hearing about it. Gentle and lowly. I imagine almost everyone bought it. And some of us maybe even read it. This is a part. He's talking about Jesus and his attitude towards people who come to him to help. should be on the screen as well. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offence, he deals gently with us. Isn't that quality? Let's pray. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Lord, you know us intimately. You know where we are with our journey with you. You know the intimacies of our hearts. 
We thank you that by your spirit you speak to us and you bring us to you. Whether we're those who are tempted to look down on others, whether we're those who couldn't quite possibly look up to heaven, we pray and ask that you would speak the words to us that we need to hear. We thank you so much for Jesus and the fact that you justify the ungodly for Jesus' life, death and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that you will never hold our sins against us if we turn to you and ask. Hallelujah. Amen.